Hey y'all, just a quick warning before we start the show. We go pretty in-depth into the films we discuss and may spoil plot twists or endings or occasionally beginnings. Okay, let's get started. All right, Gibby, we need a good beatbox for our theme song. Go. It'd be cool if you just played the actual theme song. This is Four Friends Fight About Films, a podcast about movies and things more important than movies, if we ever find any. I've been looking. Today's theme is overrated. And what we're talking about here is movies that should be rated PG-13, but were rated R, <laughs> or movies that should be rated PG and are rated PG-13. Like Glass in the Hickens? Is that correct? That, or no. that, that, is, music? that is correct. So we'll each be picking our top three most overrated films today. Uh, but to start us off, let's get to know everybody's voices. So we are going to say our name and our favorite movie with a number in the title that is over eight. <laughs> over eight. Over eight. This is greater than eight. Greater than eight. This is why. So the name I, of I, this is overrated. This is why I hate this part of the show more than anything. Um, I'm sorry. What was your name again? Lance. <laughs> this is so stupid. What, what movie got, did you choose I've again? Oh, okay, I've got one. Eight right. and a half. <laughs> just barely. I just made barely it, made the call. Made eight it. and a half. The Italian masterpiece by Federico Fellini. Wonderful film. Gibby. Uh, 310 to Yuma. Uh, that's not. It's yeah. three, 310 to Yuma. That's, that's like, what I got like out of three the movie. Point, Find not, eight and a half mile. <laughs> Are you Jordan? eight mile? I yeah, eight be, mile. I be, you said greater yeah, than eight. Greater than eight. Greater than eight. Yeah. yeah not I, think, eight I don't think greater. eight is greater than eight. Yeah. Otherwise, Lance would have chosen eight millimeters. Jordan All right, Allen? I'll start over. 27 dresses. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely over eight. I crunched the numbers on that. It's over eight. I'm Jordan. 28 days later. It's a good one. Mm. Uh, I'm Hudson Oceans 11. Mm, you make sure there wasn't an Ocean 7. That I was yeah. entertaining Oceans 12 for a moment there. But. Alrighty, so again, we are choosing our top three most overrated films. So first of all, I guess, what does that mean to us that a movie is overrated? What was your criteria as you were coming up with your list? Well, I mean, to me, what this boiled down to was the largest uh, chasm between what the general response was to a film and what I thought the accurate response was. The larger that chasm was, the more likely it was to get on my list. Can I also say, I think that this is the podcast that is most likely to end our friendship. <laughs> well, that's exciting. If we don't like, if we don't survive a podcast, it will be this one. A lot of verbal fisticuffs. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're really I've, seen you guys, I've, I've, I've seen you guys' lists, and there are some really wrong movies on there. Not mine. Well, <laughs> except all three of yours. Yeah. Uh, for me, and, and the thing is that these aren't necessarily bad movies; they're just overrated movies. Agreed. So they could still be good movies; they just aren't as good as what people said. They Not were. mine. Terrible movies. The way that I read the worst. Is there's there's a few sorry Jordan no it's your turn uh, there was a few criteria that I looked at I mean there's a lot of different things that people can look at to determine what generally is conceded as a good movie is it box office receipts uh, is it winning no. an Academy Award which I kind of believe really. is a little bit overrated in of itself in terming uh, determining whether or not a movie is good especially uh, I think as time goes on it becomes less and less of a actual certification that a movie is good one of the movies on my list is and the one I actually have number one is not a bad movie. 
movie. I actually remember walking out of the theater, and I'll get to it later, but thinking it was an okay movie. But the praise heaped upon it afterwards was so absurd and unjustified that that's why it's the number one movie on my yeah, list. 27 Dresses. Yeah. <laughs> no. Can, uh, we, can, we, you can, love can we put a moratorium on the 27 Dresses references for the rest of the podcast? Is it because you haven't seen it? No, it's because no. I want this podcast to maintain some degree of dignity. <laughs> <laughs> Good one. Yep. Uh, one of the other things that I looked at is recently there was a list that compiled around 220, 225 critics, and they listed their 10 best movies of the past 15 years, and it was a BBC poll. Out of those 15 years, I mean, if you look at Academy Awards as a barometer of what's good or not good, I think only like four or five of those Academy Award winners even made this list of what critics choose as their top movies. As much as douchey film people like me want to always say this is the greatest or this is not, there is an undeniable subjectivity to film. And your perspective on it, even even as a person change, like like me, there are movies that I thought were amazing ten years ago that I think suck now, and vice versa. <laughs> like like this list for me in ten years could look totally different than it does Absolutely. right now. And that, yeah. that's that's interesting. That's what right. makes it interesting. I can watch a movie. Jordan, you're going to mention a movie on your list that the first time I saw it, I thought it was terrible. I watched it again two weeks ago, loved it. Yeah, it was a mistake. It's weird. No, it's just it's where you hit these movies and where you're at in your life. I mean, so much of it has to do with where you are personally when you watch a film, and that doesn't get talked about enough when people ranking and discussing the greatness of a movie absolutely true and i think also not just subjectivity but also uh longevity so a movie you know a lot of these accolades are, are put on a movie the year that it came out it gets good reviews and makes a lot of money it wins academy awards and a lot of those movies 10 20 years later are completely forgotten and they don't pass that kind of test of longevity and i would maybe think that a lot of these songs that we're talking about day, today fall into that into that category yeah that's kind of that's kind of the problem with the oscar is that they freeze things in time that are going to change later. So Star Wars loses in 1977 to Annie Hall. Annie Hall's a great movie, but I think when people talk about impact to the film world, it, it, there, there's no comparison. Right. But at that particular moment, that night at the Oscars, that's what happened to be top on most people's list. I think, list. Gibby, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, was 27 Dresses up for the uh, best Oscar that year as well? Yeah, 1977. Yeah, well, that moratorium's over. <laughs> <laughs> I think we have 23 references left until <laughs> we've used it all up. <laughs> we've got four more. <laughs> all right, so, Jordan, Jordan um, what did you look at in making your list? Basically, I looked at highly regarded movies that that I think suck. Uh, and it was really that simple. Yeah. And I pretty much just looked to the three movies that make me the maddest when people talk about them. Ah. So yours was more of a rage-based criteria. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Personal yeah. vendetta against yep. these movies. All right. So Lance, you want to get us started with your number three most overrated film of all time? All time. Why not? My number three film is Lord of the Rings Return of the King, Peter Jackson's 2003 I'm going to call it a mess. <laughs> let, me, let, me, let me say this first off. I love Lord of the Rings. I've read the books. I, I was all on board with Fellowship. I love Two Towers. There's a joke you hear about this movie, which is that it has like four endings. Even the people who love it say that. The, movie, the, movie, just kept, the movie kept on ending over and over and over again. And of course it did. It had like 80 storylines it had to tie up. So the segmentation of this movie is ridiculous. So in Fellowship, it's simple. Let's get a ring to Mordor. Got it. Okay. That's simple enough. The next one. Okay. It's a little more complex. We've got Gollum. There's Helm's Deep. We're getting a little more into 
Aragon story. Great. And there's two towers to deal with. Right. It's just two towers. Twin towers, if you will. Then we okay. Mm. Then we get to Return of the King. I made a list of all of the storylines going on here, and I felt like I just needed to take a damn nap by the end of this. It was it was absurd. That's why they have all the endings, so you can <laughs> nap. You wake up, you see an ending, you're and it's fine. And these and these are these are all major plot points. I mean, these are these are things that like need to be dealt with and tied up. And by the end, I just didn't care anymore. I was having to look in so many directions with this movie. I got sick of it. Do you, do you think Peter Jackson was like, you know what the best part of movies is? The ending. What if we just did like four <laughs> so of those? There is actually, if you watch, they, they talk about the very final scene. You got to remember, they filmed this movie over how many years? It was like Several. nine. Nine. Or um, <laughs> like like all the movies. Months. So you're joking when you say that, but they talked about the very final scene they shot. And they were done. He had gotten it, and he just kept on filming it over and over and over again. And everybody in the cast was sitting there like, what's he doing? <laughs> like Kubrickin' him. There's a, thing, there's a thing that he was supposed to say when the shot was over, which was close the gate, and he wouldn't say it. And everybody's like, why isn't he saying close the gate? And it was because he just didn't want to let this go. It had been such a part of his life. The thing is, the segmentation of this movie isn't my biggest problem with it. It's the just absolute, and this is going to come up in the next movie I'm going to talk about, but it's the absolute lack of subtlety. Every scene in this movie feels like Peter Jackson is just ramming my face in it. And it just drove me crazy after a while there's a there's a cardinal rule in filmmaking that you're supposed to show things rather than talk about them and yet everybody in this movie gives like this long exhaustive speech about how they're feeling and it's just like yeah, it just felt like this was in a constant state of exposition well i, don't, I, don't I mean there's a couple of things here first of all in terms of oscars i feel like it was rewarding the trilogy more than it was the actual film right second of all i mean wasn't all that stuff that you referenced that you're saying it's kind of overstuffed i mean all that was in the book right a film is just an interpretation of a book you don't have to include every single minute storyline involved in it. And so is that true of the first two books and then the third one he was just like hey, let's throw in I think it was in Tolkien's uh, contract that it all had to be in there. The joke is is that Tolkien was dead. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he's right. That's, that is the joke. Um, <laughs> I mean you defend this movie to me because I, I'm, I'm alone. I went online. The, the other two movies I'm going to talk about, there, there are websites dedicated to how overrated they are. This one, I'm in the minority here. Everybody loves this movie. And not only that, and you're right, Hudson, this, this was a film that I think was re- the, the Oscars that it was given were more rewarding the whole trilogy. But this movie, people still love it. I think it's still the highest ranked of the three on IMDb. It's, it's my favorite. Is it? If you fall asleep for the last hour, it's awesome. Isn't that a problem, though? I mean, don't you have to watch the whole movie? Can't you not just skip an hour? With other movies, yes. An With hour? this movie, no. Maybe that's why I like this movie so much. You can just miss the last hour and it doesn't, doesn't make a difference. put on late at night. Yeah. A couple of... Uh, watch the first three and a half hours and then fall asleep. A couple of fun stories about Lord of the Ring Return of the King. I saw it about two weeks before it was released. Get out. I saw, the night. I saw the night before, but not two back weeks. Back in my privileged days of working at the movie theater. And I remember leaving it going, ah, oh, yeah, it was pretty good. And like the, the other theater owners and stuff that watched it with me were sitting there in tears by the end of the movie. And I thought, I don't, I don't quite get it. I thought maybe I'm just missing something. They came out to phenomenal reviews and three or four or five weeks later, Lance and I went and watched it a second time for each of us. Legitimately, I remember us laughing the whole last 30 it minutes it of the movie. It was unwatchable. It is unwatchable. And then every shot between Sam and Frodo, like they cut to Sean Astin's face and it's just like... True love? Yeah. True love. I mean, it's hilarity, actually. I want to hear more about Sam. <laughs> yeah. Hey, they went through a lot together. They spent <laughs> they a lot of time together. And you could argue that for uh, Mary and Pippin as well and uh-huh. Gimli and um, the pretty one. 
<laughs> you're not, you're not going to get an argument from me that this movie is overrated because I think it's by far the most overrated. Thank you. That's two of, of the us trilogy. Out of the I've country. only seen this movie once. <laughs> but I, I, yeah. I think the best part about these movies, because I don't actually think that any of the three are that good. What I think the best thing about these movies are the making of, which oh, is just absolutely. as long. Absolutely. And it's the, the most fascinating making of I've ever seen. Even if you don't like Lord of the Rings, this Blu-ray series is worth buying just because the special features are just tremendous. Yeah, I find myself watching the making of way more often than the actual movies. Huh? Anyway, read the book. The book's better. Jordan, your most overrated film, number three. Number three, There Will Be Blood. Oh, boy. 2007, P.T. Anderson. Uh, I think Daniel Day-Lewis won every award available to him for this. I drink your milkshake. <laughs> Hey, Gibby. Oh, that's good. Like a Sean Connery. <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, if I say I'm an oil man, you will agree. Wow. That, that was good. not yeah. a clip, ladies and gentlemen. That was, that <laughs> Daniel Day-Lewis is not here. That was great. For a second, I thought, I was like, whoa, where'd, how'd he get in here? Uh, 91% Rotten Tomatoes, 86 audience score. It's on so many best of the decade lists as number one. It's on a lot of top 100 of ever lists and I just don't understand I mean there are things that I really like about it I think that Daniel Day-Lewis is phenomenal in it although I don't think he's the best performance in it I think Paul Dano is unbelievable in it are you checking your phone right now so if I had I have one my problem with that movie, oh, okay, I was like, is, is he, he knows we're recording a podcast, right? <laughs> I was looking at Instagram. I was like, are you bored? are you bored with the podcast? <laughs> yep. Now that we're on my movie, I hate this movie. Talking. I hate this movie so much that I uh, you get bored talking. Yeah. Yeah. You start checking your, your. I love there will be blood. What? Yeah, I didn't see it until a couple years ago. Big I mean, twist I was, in the podcast. I was entranced by it. <laughs> Uh, and basically spellbound the whole movie, you know, between the score and the imagery and just the intensity of the film. The, the it, score it, is amazing. Yeah. It's shot gorgeously. It's acted super well. I mean, like the the scene where Dana Day-Lewis and Paul Dano are wrestling in the mud, it like puts my jaw oh. on the floor. It's amazing. Uh, although I think Paul Dano's actually more impressive is in that like, scene. like uh, like sexually charged? It's in the basement of a frat house. <laughs> Jello or sorry, oh, it's yeah. mud. I didn't think it was. I didn't think it was possible for a scene of two dudes wrestling in mud to make your jaw drop. What was so jaw dropping about it? I like I watch, watching Paul Dano and what he went through in that, and the you how mean, he's you mean, uh, being covered in mud. Well, <laughs> Dano Day Lewis is sitting on top of him, jamming mud into Paul Dano's mouth. Oh yeah, that would. And Paul Dano is taking it. Um, you know, this might uh, ruin that scene for you, but it was delicious pudding that they were shoving into. Oh mouth. no, that yeah. makes it even better. I thought you were going to say the mud was CGI. <laughs> there was no mud, Jordan. Um, now, I, I, I remember seeing this movie. I, I remember being really excited about this movie because the trailer was amazing. I, I really like P.T. Anderson. And I remember getting to the end of it and going, meh. And I actually felt like I was the problem for not liking it. Like, I'd gotten it in my head like, well, this is just a movie smart people like. And um, I actually felt like, well, I... I oh, Lance, you're smart. Well, thanks, Hudson. <laughs> But yeah, but I felt like, okay, I, I did something wrong here. <laughs> you know, like, you know how sometimes you, there, there's just this, a movie catches on in, in pop culture or, or among the film elite or and whatever you're like, you want to call it. I just in a bad mood that day yeah. or what did I miss? You're like, well, I must've screwed up. I didn't like this movie. And that's kind of how I felt after this. I, but I do remember some critics and my favorite critic who I'll call R. Ebert to protect his anonymity <laughs> saying that this was a really good movie, but not a great movie. And, and my I guess is that if I watch 
watch this again, that's kind of would kind of be my take of it. I have the quote. R. Ebert gave it 3.5 stars. Rebert? <laughs> yes, let's call him Rebert. Rebert said, There Will Be Blood is the kind of film that is easily called great. I am not sure of its greatness. It was filmed in the same area of Texas used by No Country for Old Men, and that is a great film and a perfect one. <clears throat> Aside here, Jordan disagrees with that. <laughs> we'll get to that later. Foreshadowing. Uh, spoiler alert, more like. But There Will Be Blood is not perfect. And in its imperfections, its unbending characters, its lack of women, or any reflection of ordinary society, its ending, its relentlessness, we may see its reach exceeding its grasp, which is not a dishonorable thing. Which I, I agree with all of the things in there that actually refer to There Will Be Blood. The film is, is very much about greed, right? I mean, that's essentially yeah, what it comes down to. Which and there, there speaks are, to the 2016 pretty well, I think. What do, you, what do you mean? Just the culture of greed in 2016 that is so... Because greed just started this year. Yeah. <laughs> so, point I want to make about this, though, is that there are great movies about greed. Treasure of the Sierra Madre is one of them. Oh, the and, best. And what, what is, movies about greed, to me... Wall Street. Yeah, great one. It is critical to see somebody take the journey from not greedy and Mm -hmm. wholesome to greedy. Mm -hmm. And where I felt like this film fell apart was Daniel Plainview was already a sociopath when the movie started. Right. I can't relate to that. I don't get that. There's no real I can't take that journey with him because he's just crazy. Right. And I'm like, okay, just a crazy guy. It's like a, like a, a, a sloping line. Like, I remember sitting in the theater and it ends... And I'm like that can't that can't be the ending it of this movie. It does have kind of a weird ending, and it's shocking. And I, I think people I think that's what a lot of people attach themselves to. All right, Gibby, let's go with your number three most overrated film of all time. Of all time, Avatar worldwide two point seven billion dollars. <laughs> all the money. There's a billion with a B. The reason it's not my number one is because I'm not totally sure people like this movie. Uh, Somebody's yeah, got to. Point. I mean, how did it make eight hundred billion or eight hundred million dollars in the U.S. and it was nominated for best? It picture, was nominated right? for best picture. Actually, won a couple of awards, I think, in the technical categories. But it's not one that you actually hear people talking about anymore. Basically, because it's just a complete retread of Pocahontas, Fern Gully, um, Dances with Wolves, Dances with Wolves, many other movies. Uh, but I don't know. I think it just hit at the right time. The cultural zeitgeist wanted a 3D movie in a yeah. Weird world with blue people. You're making such a good point here because that was what was odd to me about this movie. This movie was making crazy cash, and I wasn't talking to that many people that liked it. And when you did try and really, really like explore what people liked about it, here's what you'd always get: it's got good effects. Like uh, that's not a selling point of a movie. That's uh, saying a movie has good effects is like saying a movie has opening credits. A movie's supposed to have good effects. That's your job when you're making a movie. It's supposed well, to do that. Yeah, but this movie was propped up on its effects. That's basically yeah. all I had going for it. Again, terrible thing to prop a movie sure. up on. I mean, it, it, it looked terrible, awesome. except that it's made more money than any yeah. other movie it, ever. It is, but and this, nominated for best picture. I mean, like you can argue that, except that if you were James Cameron, you tapped into something that we don't seem to understand. Hudson's point is it's not overrated. It's like in my top 10 favorite movies of all time. (laughs) I mean, I remember watching it and thinking this looks good and the 3D was impressive but the movie's boring yeah I mean nobody is a like die in the wool defender of Avatar I think that's just what I've noticed I wonder it's, if there are though and they just there don't has to be they aren't in our I circles mean, maybe, at all yeah maybe like in China I mean there has to be people even in America no, it made... the Chinese people <laughs> great you just government. pissed off <laughs> the largest country in the world <laughs> the um, majority of our listenership there is they're also making Avatar World at Disney World now at the right. Animal Kingdom do you yeah. just go in there and blow yourself what <laughs> Blue yourself. <laughs> 
Well, so that's Avatar. I mean, I don't let us know. Is that movie overrated or not? Does anybody actually like it? But based upon box office receipts, this is by far the most overrated movie of all time. My number three uh, most overrated movie is Inside Out, the Pixar Whoa. movie. Now, Inside Out has a 98% on Rotten Tomatoes. And if you look at the all-time best-reviewed movies on Rotten Tomatoes, it's sitting at number eight. So I think that means wow. you're wrong. It made $853 million at International Box Office. It won Best Animated Feature and was nominated for Best Original Screenplay. Now, Inside Out is about a little girl named Riley uh, struggling to adjust as she moves to a new city. But the main characters of the movie are the emotions in her brain, joy, sadness, anger, fear, and disgust. Although, ironically, this was the first Pixar film in memory that I didn't feel any emotions while watching it. <laughs> it's because you are a heartless human being. Uh, except possibly possibly discussed. <laughs> Inside Out is, uh, and I, I will give it this, it's a clever movie and it deals with an important, wise message about recognizing and embracing your emotions. It's just unfortunately uh, unfunny, annoying, and oddly disconnecting. The stuff with Riley and her parents is interesting enough, especially since uh, I'm a dad and can relate to what it's like to put your kid through things and uh, want to connect with them. But the movie spends most of its time fabricating clever and dramatic things for the emotions to do, none of which uh, I cared about. The worst of which was them running into an old imaginary friend uh, who might be the most annoying character ever in a Pixar movie, uh, and that includes a tow truck voiced by Larry the Cable Guy. Mm. Oh, but that... <laughs> Any movie with Amy Poehler and Bill Hader should have been way funnier, but I don't remember laughing out loud at all. And I could only find one Rotten review uh, from a top critic on Rotten Tomatoes, Bill Sachs of the Chicago Reader, who summed it up nicely when he said, it feels like a clever educational short stretched to feature length. And I completely agree with that, that it would have made an amazing Pixar short, but really didn't work as a feature. Even Michael Arndt, who was an early writer on it, left the project saying it was both a brilliantly creative idea but also incredibly challenging um, and apparently whoever took over after him did not did a phenomenal job the problem <laughs> to finish the movie and make it awesome yeah so I was um, not a fan of this film and Gibby I believe you're the only one that has seen this Jordan you hadn't seen it yeah, I, tell you, I haven't heard a hatchet job on a movie like that since my review of Return of the King 20 <laughs> minutes ago yeah this is I haven't seen this movie I can't comment on it, it it's particularly shocking to hear you of all people say this because you love you some Pixar I do love Pixar yeah so, absolutely so that's, Which is why it felt overly backstabbing. If anybody was going to like this. So this isn't just a overrated movie. This is a betrayal to you. <laughs> but it seems like this yeah. is a clear win for Gibby as king of loving Pixar. Yeah. I do. Yeah, yeah. So I think I climbed a mountain of Pixar loving guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's just a happy one. You um, climbed a mountain yeah. of Pixar loving guys. There's, there's at least a... <laughs> <laughs> Okay, uh, I so, will say, yep. though, that Inside if John Laster is listening to this, um, I would still love a job at Pixar, so I don't want him to take it personally. And Mr. Laster, if you are listening, uh, you could give the job to someone who didn't just rip your film apart. <laughs> yeah, like me. That hasn't watched a Pixar film in 10 years. <laughs> Not true. Anyway, I, I've seen this movie three times. I watched it just as recently as 14 days ago. And uh, each time, at the end of that movie, when she comes back home and talks to her parents, like it just gets me. I mean, I'm almost teared 
tear down the eye. Gibby wept. Part. Yeah, Gibby wept at that. And there's another part in the movie. I know you said Bing Bong's the most annoying character oh, in Bing history. Bong's terrible. But the end of Bing Bong in that movie. Guys, is, his name is Bing Bong. <laughs> just gets me. <laughs> is it worse so than Jar Jar? I can't even take this podcast seriously anymore. We're talking about <laughs> Bing Bong, the character. <laughs> this movie is just so creative. I mean, it's just just hits me on an emotional level every time. It is I've weird to it. me. It seems like a movie, having not seen it, but having heard interviews about it and knowing something about it, it seems like a movie that Hudson would love. I know. Yeah, that's yeah. what's so and agreed. It's it's very clever, and I think it's a great message for kids. I think it's a great message for anybody to watch, uh, and it's very smart. It just doesn't work as a no. It doesn't work as a movie. You keep saying great things about it. It's clever. It's smart. It's flawless. It should have swept the Academy Awards. Between, it reaches me on every yeah. level. But it's so overrated. There's a difference between a movie that says something and a movie that is a great story. I agree so completely. And can, this movie does both of those it things. It does not do both of those things. Mm-hmm. It says something really interesting and unique, but it, it wraps it in a really uninteresting story. I, I, I just think this is in the upper echelon of Pixar movies. And I mean, the end of this is, to me, about as heavy as any of the Pixar films. I watched it with my then four-year-old nephew. And the last 10 minutes of the movie, he was just, I don't know if devastated is the right word. He was just so intense into the movie. And I mean, because it really does get super emotional. It might have been because he was watching his uncle cry. There's nothing, <laughs> it could have been there's nothing like, better than watching my... a four-year-old be devastated. <laughs> yeah. And you actually look like you're about to cry right now as you're talking about it. I see your eyes being glassy. <laughs> uh, well, Gibby, we're just going to have to agree that you are wrong. <laughs> Yeah. All right, Lance, your number two most overrated film. Paul Haggis' 2004 film, Crash. So here's a movie that was made in 2004 that treats racism how it was in 1804. Um, <laughs> you you hate everyone in this movie within uh, five minutes of meeting them. And not only that, it's basically made clear that they're all racists within five minutes of meeting them. This it, this To me, this suffers from the same problem Return of the King. Is it just does not understand the concept of subtlety. Everything's in your face. Everything's spelled out for you. And that would be fine, except that unlike Return Return of the King, this movie is dealing with an issue that actually matters. Like This is something that needs to be treated delicately, and they just treat it with a hatchet, and it, it's it's aggravating, because this isn't really how racism works. Uh, I mean, and it, it doesn't deal with the most dangerous part. I'm not trying to get into a whole like, political speech about racism, but what makes racism scary and dangerous is that it is so subtle, that it doesn't just come at you with, you know, with a scary mask on, that it, that it is done behind closed doors and, and in whispers, and this movie just doesn't treat it like that. It, it made... It, it felt like it was made by a bunch of people who don't deal with racism on a daily basis but have read about it in papers a lot and know it's bad so they felt like they needed to make a movie about it. It's it's almost like it was done so they could communicate how virtuous they are for opposing racism than actually saying something interesting about it. And that drove me crazy. In a way this movie of of my three probably annoyed me the most because it was such an opportunity to actually say something that mattered and was important and dealt with a heavy-handed subject in a way that could do some good and it just failed miserably. Well I think the reason that this won the awards and got fairly well reviewed although it's 75 percent it's the lowest rated of our or is it 73 percent it's the lowest rate of our 12 movies we've picked in terms of rotten tomatoes and you're right it's not subtle it is very hit you over the head but the reason that i think it won the award is it's safe and at the end every character learns their lesson you know it, it follows the it's safe in that like lance said it doesn't oh, it's talk not, about the subtle edgy. the subtle racism it, it's all just out there for everybody to see like this person's a bad person by the end of the movie they learn a lesson they're a better person everybody racism is a, for dummies everybody is a, yeah everybody's a better person by the end of the movie except for the one guy that died because he's a dead person you might be better so this yeah. this movie again like like all three of the films i picked one best picture of the year it came out um there there's a axiom is that the right word that that the cream rises to the top that is not true in hollywood at all 
the, the cream does not rise to the top in Hollywood. Well, but over time, over time it does Tem- temporarily. And in a, the snapshot of the Oscars, movies win what they win because of a stigma or a, or a desire to make a political statement or, or a marketing campaign or a marketing campaign. That's why movies win best picture. And that's exactly what happened here. And unlike return of the King, this is a film that has, has been very, I would say degraded in its perception yeah. over time. Yeah. I, w- I went on IMDb last night and looked at it and literally every message board topic was, why do people like this? This movie sucks. <laughs> it was, it was just a litany of this movie sucks. I, I'll defend Otherwise, this movie a little bit. I mean, I think it's, well shot is pretty well acted by the people and the story's way over the top but I think it's gotten so much hate now that it's Brendan almost Frazier. well you just mentioned yeah, two, you just wow. mentioned two things though that I think every movie should do be well shot and be well acted <laughs> but I'm, not, I'm not sure those are really feathers in its cap I mean, even now I have a hard time bad-mouthing this movie just because it's like, oh, it's about racism. You can't yeah. bad-mouth it. It's not about, about racism. racism. That's the problem. It's okay, about, but it's about, I a, would be it's about what, a cartoonish version of so racism. So when's, when's the last time any of you have seen this movie? I've never seen it. I saw so, it when it came out. And there's, there's, one or, I mean, there's one scene in there that got me. And I'm kind of a sucker. If I cry at a movie or almost cry at a movie, I'm like, that movie's good. Well, and you're also a racist, yeah. so... <laughs> not true um so but what i'm curious about is if with today's kind of society where it's at where this is a lot kind of fresher than it was at the time yeah. which i mean maybe i don't know i think it's more of a it's a little bit hotter of a topic it's talked about Certainly. a little bit more now than right it was now. then then i would be curious how but is it plays that because now of crash? and if you connect with it more <laughs> it's crash single-handedly responsible all i remember about crash is it had the same kind of storytelling device that like you know traffic did and and I just I, so I, I just compared it to Traffic just because of that, and I was yeah. like, oh, Traffic was better. I think you compared it because they're both single word titles that uh, are in the same like crashes happen because of traffic. I always get these movies confused <laughs> just because of, like just because they're in the kind of the same vein of conceptually. Right. All right, Jordan, you're number two. No Country for Old Men. Great movie. Mm-mm. I want to love this movie so much. Uh, I wanted to love it in the theater. I loved it for a lot of it, but to me, this movie just falls apart now, at the it's end. It's one of those things, Jordan, where you're like, oh, it was a great movie except for this one line at the end. <laughs> yeah, let me, I, I, I do want to explain this. Jordan played. has this bizarre habit of like, <laughs> what was it? Like, Kate, Kate Fear is the best example. Martin Scorsese, Kate Fear. Kate. The movie was amazing, except there's this one shot where Martin Scorsese lingers his camera slightly too long on the watch that Juliet no, Lewis is wearing. No, it's not a watch, wearing. it's a phone. I don't really want to get into the actual example, Jordan. I'm just making a point. But I rewatched that recently. Don't and, care, meandering. And I think I made up that shot. Meandering. It wasn't in there. <laughs> See, you, you criticize movies for shots that are not even in them. Hey, we all remember things that didn't okay, happen. Okay, Jordan, what's your problem with No Country for Well, Man? first of all, let's get the facts down. It's Coen Brothers, 2007, same time as There Will Be Blood. Yep. There was actually, there's a story that there will be blood messed up a shot in No Country for Old Men. That's how close they were shooting together. Was it smoke billowing? <laughs> really? Yeah, smoke wow. billowing from There Will Be Blood was in the shot of No Country for Old Men, so they had to wait like a day. like oil raining down everywhere on No Country for Old Men. <laughs> it's like Daniel Day-Lewis walking around. Yeah. They, they had to push back um, Joel, the shoe for a day. You got, uh, oil, you got oil in my milkshake. <laughs> oh, wait, no, that'd be the same movie. It's 93% on yeah. Rotten Tomatoes and uh, best picture. 86 audience best picture. And oh, wait, one best picture? Mm-hmm. It is absolutely beautiful. Roger Deakins kills it. It's super well acted. It's, it's got a super awesome story. I, I, like it's, I think it's got so much going for it. And it's not just one thing. It all For me, it all falls apart after they go to Desert Sands, the, the motel by the airport. 
And for some reason, then the Coens decide not to show you anything else. And it, it feels to me like they just kind of didn't know how to wrap it all up, which I, which I can't blame the Coens totally for, because and I haven't read Cormac McCarthy's book that it. it's based on, but I imagine that it's actually McCarthy's fault and yeah. not the Coens. But we're not, not talking about books, we're talking about movies. Um, I, I, yeah, you're wrong about <laughs> this. Uh, up, I, watched, I rewatched this film a couple weeks ago, and I, I was with you before that. I remember seeing it, and I remember thinking, eh, it's okay, I don't get what the big deal is. Watch it again. I thought it was fantastic. It strike, and this is what the Coens always do. They strike such a great tone. I don't disagree with you that it did hit a little. The part of the part of the film you're talking about where it fell apart was towards the end, though, wasn't it? It's just the end of the movie. Yeah. He goes he goes to the desert sands and he talks to that woman by the pool and they have that fun conversation that I like. But she's trying to get him to drink beer and beer leads to more beer and it's but, it's a great but, scene. But after that, it feels like they had this great balloon all blown up. And it was beautiful, and then they just let go, and the balloon just. I can understand why that would be frustrating, but the fact that the you really like the first ninety percent of the movie doesn't mm-hmm. that get you anywhere? Or you're just it, saying the final ten percent just ruined it for you? It ruined it for me, and it makes me really hate this movie. I just don't. I don't. And maybe it's something that I'm missing. I just. I don't understand why they they don't show how Lewin dies. They don't show what happens to his wife. I don't understand why we end with Tommy Lee's stupid dream that he's telling his brother, whoever he is. Well, and I I get. That that like Tommy Lee's character doesn't understand what's happening in the world mm-hmm. and therefore maybe we as an audience since he's our narrator and he's telling us the story that we shouldn't really understand it either right. but we've seen a lot of things that Tommy Lee didn't see and I just feel I'm left much like how I'm left at the end of There Will Be Blood I'm, I'm left with like man this could have been cool I think it's interesting that three of the movies that we've named so far were based on books and I wonder if yeah um, all of I mean, mine are Wonder if that has anything to I do read, with it. I read. I read No Country for Old Men, the book. I did not see the movie, so I don't really have a. You still haven't seen fight. it? No, it's on Netflix. So I should watch it. Um, you haven't seen No Country for Old Men? I haven't. You're quoting it all the time. <laughs> I've heard you quote it like a hundred times. You're always doing like Anton Chigurh lines. No. You haven't earned that right. <laughs> <laughs> I read the book. I mean, from what I've heard, the book is. I mean, the movie is very, very similar to the book, and like you said, the the book just ends. It's uh, it sounds like the movie does. That's sort of. I and think that's a from the perspective thing. of you, you can't call me friendo. Yeah. Mm. You are my friendo. Uh, I, <laughs> <laughs> All right, Gibby, number. What are we on two? Number two, two. the Big Lebowski. Ooh, this is gonna get us some hate mail. Man, it's not it's, me because I, I mean, love this movie. I, I've I saw it. You guys had seen it before. I saw it, and you're telling me how great it was, and I watched it, and. I was just like, I don't get it. I, I'm not a big fan of movies about drug culture, and it seemed to be that was a lot of the jokes in here, and I just, it doesn't tickle my funny bones. <laughs> I think it's more a movie about just lazy culture. <laughs> that I am pretty lazy, so you think it would fit right in with me. And I, I generally like the Coen brothers. I mean, Raising Arizona is probably in my top 15, top 20 favorite movies of all time, and uh, but I. I don't get it. Um, I, let me say this. I, I love this movie. I'm a huge Big Lebowski fan, like most normal people are. Uh, but <laughs> most people with I, a sense I, of no, humor. I'm going to defend Gibby on this. Gibby, because you're I, really going to get found in the Alps on this one. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm, I'm going to defend Gibby here because while I don't understand where you're coming from, this movie strikes such a unique tone. It's such a bizarre odyssey. It strikes such a middle ground of just being fun and weird and crazy that it makes sense that not everybody would connect with it. I, I get that. I, I can understand understand why somebody might watch this movie and it's just like I just don't get it I could see how somebody could watch this movie once and not get it I do I do feel like you might need to watch it again because I remember the first time I watched it 
I thought I probably liked it, but it was so insane. I was like, what did I just watch? Yeah. And I just knew I wanted to watch it again. Second time I watched it, I loved it. So you might want to give it another shot. And maybe with some friends. It's better every time. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely with friends. Give it, you just need some friends. And try some drugs. I don't think, I don't think there's another movie like it. <laughs> I can't, yeah, I yeah. can't. And, and it's funny, I, I don't, think I don't think about this. When people ask, oh, what are your favorite movies? Like, I don't ever think of Big Lebowski. But when I, when I do think of it, it's easily one of my it's favorite so movies. Right. Good. It's so quotable, and there's so many, I mean, every scene is just, and it's just, it's, it's an awesome story. It's a unique voice. One of the best characters of all time. Yeah. The dude. And yet if I had to sit down and describe it to somebody, I would understand if they went, that sounds yeah. ridiculous. It is completely ridiculous. It's absurd. Musical numbers. But it's a great awesome clashing, clashing of yeah. worlds that it's just, yeah, yeah I mean, they, I like the scenes, really I like the scenes something. where he's talking to the rich guy. I mean, and that's funny, the whole scene where they're there. <laughs> to tell you've only seen this movie once. <laughs> the one with the ball with you the ball in it. With that, with that rich guy. Uh, no, where they're talking about the, the, big Lebowski? the rug. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The big Lebowski. Uh, yeah. Uh, so you know, the whole rug. Why, and why would you rug. say that it's overrated, though? Is this just one that you, like, yeah, this everybody is one surrounding where, you Because everybody, it may just be my circle of friends, quotes it constantly, loves it, and then. In the world, yeah, does. and it's on IMDb's. My top mom doesn't. Two hundred movies. I don't know. It's just I, the reason I think it's overrated is I just didn't get it, and now all I hear about is how great Big Lebowski is, and people always wanting to see. You, you are a cinephile, and in the world of cinephiles, this this is a movie that is very much beloved. So I can yeah. understand why it, that would be frustrating. I don't know. I just found it really vulgar too. <laughs> oh, it's it's plenty and, and vulgar. It, that might explain, it sounds stupid, yeah. and it sounds like. Yeah. But sometimes, I mean, I like Forty Year Old Virgin and Knocked Up, and I don't know why, but for whatever reason, <laughs> this is where. Give each other Brutus. He likes to let his hair yeah. down. Yeah, guys, I like it to get crazy too. Yeah, so it I, sounds I, I like you like, cream you, you like actually <laughs> vulgar instead of clever and vulgarity. wonderful, like Rushmore, which you don't really like, yeah. which has some vulgarities in it. Well, what's the, what's the Sam Elliott line in the movie where he's like, "Do you have to use so many curse words?" <laughs> That's <laughs> like Gibby. Yeah. yeah. Alrighty, so I'm going to jump helps. into my number uh, number two most overrated, uh, Gladiator. Oh, Man, he's wrong again. No, it's terrible. No, it's awesome. <laughs> uh, now, Gladiator only has a 76% on Rotten Tomatoes, but I guess it's still you know fairly positive. That's but for pretty a best, high. For a Best Picture winner, it's it's awfully low, um, which well, made me do some research on that, on Best Picture winner with the lowest Rotten Tomato score. I would say to, that you guys could try to guess it, but I had never even heard of this movie before. What year? 1929. Best Picture winner, lowest Rotten Tomato score, The Broadway Melody, uh, 35% on Rotten Tomatoes. <laughs> wow. But since 1960, the worst uh, Rotten Tomato score was for Out of Africa. 1984. 85. Does this lead to 56, Gladiator? 56%. Lance, it's a trivia. Are these prequel? Were these prequels to Gladiator? I'm just no. We're talking about movies. movies. We're talking about this guy has a whole comedy bit for his Lord of the Rings. Best, goes best picture, minutes. best picture winner uh, with the lowest Rotten Tomato score. It's 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 interesting, and it has to do with what we're talking about. I think my problem is it doesn't have anything. To do with it does. Gladiator had a 76. percent I was like, that's low. That might be one of the lowest, and it was not. I think we're talking about Broadway Melody and Out of Africa. Yeah. yeah, we all find it relevant. Yeah. Okay, great. You can all be wrong. <laughs> Lance, do you want a beer? 
Uh, Gladiator made $457 million at the international box office, nominated for 12 Oscars. Because wow. it was fantastic. Insane. Wow. Uh, it won five of them, including Best Picture. So I'm going to go down another caveat here, Lance. Great. Gladiator was the first film in 50 years to win Best Picture without also winning Best Director or Screenplay. The, the costume designer also worked in a Pretty in Pink, the John Hughes classic. You see how that feels? The last movie to do this 50 years previous was All the King's Men. Uh, oddly enough, though, Chicago pulled the same feat three years later, yeah. which I think is an interesting maybe uh, sign of the times for the Academy Awards starting to drop off that you could win Best Picture but not win Best Director or Screenplay. <laughs> Um, that there might be something to that. Of my three films, this seems to be the one that others agree with the most. I'm going to, I don't know this name, but Susan Walsysnia of USA Today said, Gladiator pours on the usual Caesar dressing. <laughs> <laughs> Were you not entertained during the movie? Yeah, yeah, I, I, was I was not. I was, I was not, not either. High five. Roger Ebert said, Gladiator lacks joy. It employs depression as a substitute for personality and believes that if the character Characters are bitter and morose enough, we won't notice how dull they are. Well, the movie definitely lacks joy. The man's family was slaughtered in front <laughs> yeah. of him. Well, is, well, is every movie supposed to have okay, joy? Okay, so you have to wonder, so Russell Crowe in the movie says the line, I am at their mercy with the power only to amuse a mob. And I wonder if this is kind of a mouthpiece for Ridley Scott at the time dealing with Hollywood and America. Yeah, he'd been um, on kind of a downturn before that. And this is his, his chance of giving them what they want. Although, interestingly enough, I believe that this is kind of a resurgence among the uh, kind of sword and sandals movies. Yeah, it, it was. was. It was. But it's really not adding anything new to the conversation about violence. No new questions asking about it. It basically says violence is okay as long as you're pulling for the main character to kill the guy. I wasn't the best because I killed quickly. I was the best because the crowd loved me. Win the crowd, and you'll win your freedom. And apparently Ridley Scott won the crowd on this one. Interesting tidbit of that. The man that says that Alan Bates was dead when they had to go back and reshoot some scenes. So this is one of the first movies to use that whole superimposing of faces. Really? Yeah. Mm. And I saw this about five times at the movie theater. And I'm kind of afraid everything you said applies to me, but I loved it. I don't I don't think this is a great movie. I think it is a good movie. I remember when I first saw it, I didn't understand all the accolades it was receiving. After all that had died down, I went back and watched it kind of with fresh eyes a few years later. And I, I did like it. It, it, it was it the best picture winner? No, I don't think so. But it is a good movie. There is, I, I don't know, a part of me, I'm a sucker for a good revenge movie, a good comeback yeah. story. And this this does pull that and it does, trope off It does off a great well. job of making the villain just somebody you really want him to get revenge against. I do I do love Joaquin Phoenix in this movie because yeah. he's so whiny. Yeah. Now they love Maximus for his mercy. <laughs> <laughs> like, he turns into such a, like, in that whole line about busy little bees. <laughs> He's so over the top, but it, it kind of works here. Yeah. Uh, and I will say that I am neither a Ridley Scott fan or a Russell Crowe fan, mm-hmm. um, which they seem to team up a lot. So I am a Ridley them. Scott fan, but I feel like a lot of his movies fall into that good, not great Well, yeah, he's I made a lot of movies. I mean, it's I, his films to me tend to be absolutely beautiful, great effects, great action, but don't so, fully deliver. Yeah, he basically described Gladiator. Right, which is my problem with Gladiator, that and the incredible overuse of slow-mo. Uh, it's historically accurate, though, because Gladiators did fight in slow motion a lot. <laughs> do we, we know that as fact? Mm-hmm. We do. Yeah. Well, I mean, Ridley Scott's made some pretty good movies in the last 17 years, but had he not made Gladiator, I don't think he would have made any of those, because his prior three movies were 1492, Conquest of Paradise, Paradise, White Squall, and G.I. Jane. 
Did you say conquest a pair of guys? I did say <laughs> he conquest a pair of guys. It's a totally different movie. So it did kind of just get him back on track after a sort of dull period. All right, Lance, your number one most overrated movie. My number one most overrated movie is James Cameron, who was making his second appearance on this list, appearance on this list I believe. 1997 Titanic. So let me say this. What was that about again? I don't remember. Of the three movies I picked, this this one is actually probably the best one for, for me. Um, I'm not saying it's a great movie. I'm just saying it's not a terrible movie. I, I got to give this one a little context, too. Part of my, my hatred of this movie is is because I was 19 when it came out. And this was, that for me, that was right at that age where you have excessively strong feelings about pop culture. Where if you love something, it's the greatest thing ever. If you hate something, it's yeah, the most horrible thing ever. Matchbox 20, then. Uh, that's not true. <laughs> don't put that out on the... He's only loved Till Tuesday. That's the only band he really <laughs> I do loves. Like Till Tuesday. Tuesday is good. Yeah. One song. Thank you. But I also have this thing where I hate seeing people get things rewarded to a level that I didn't feel they deserved. And that's what kind of what Titanic was to me. Like I said, I didn't walk out hating it. For me, my hatred of this was more of a slow burn. I walked out thinking, well, that was all right. And then with every Leonardo DiCaprio poster I saw and replay of that stupid Celine Dion song, which you can't, if you're if you're younger, you know, I'm 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 in my late thirties, so. I was I was right at the end of my wow. and so were you and you're actually older than me. <laughs> you, if you weren't if you weren't living in that culture, you can't totally understand the bombardment of Titanic stuff everywhere. I mean, you all remember it. Yeah, it was awful. So so there's a cultural context that that plays into this a little bit. But but if I'm look, trying to look at this objectively, there are three things I really hate about this movie. Here's the first one: Leonardo DiCaprio. I don't hate Leonardo DiCaprio, but there was a period of time up until The Departed where I felt like he was just miscast in everything. And this was that movie to me. It was like Hollywood kind of kept trying to convince me that he was this tough leading man. And all I saw was this gangly kid who looked like he was 12 and had really good hair. And, and I, I kept... think he was supposed to be tough in this, though. I felt like he... I think, he was. I think they kind of made him to be a street tough because he starts off in the poker game and it's kind of a con man. But he's still kind of a kid. But, but he just looked like this child actor to me still. <laughs> he still looked like a little boy. And it just didn't work. Now, Leonardo DiCaprio now, that would work. If you cast him in this now, I wouldn't have an issue with this. Well, let's remake it. Let's not. Um, you think Leo would be down for it? Yeah. But I, kept, I watched this movie and I kept thinking, like, why doesn't Billy Zane just beat the hell out of this kid? Like, it's, <laughs> Does Billy Zane second, second issue, not one likable character in this movie. I, I didn't know who to pull for. I've got you got this love triangle. The, the Billy Zane plays the the I guess fiance. Were they married yet? Uh uh-uh. uh. Okay. He he's a douche. This guy this this kid comes along well, who's he's annoying. The bad guy, and he's so that's like, he's sleeping with he the guy's fiance. It. He was the terrorist on the boat. No, that was uh, Iceberg. Can I get through one damn sentence? <laughs> but but like I look at this love triangle and I'm like I'm not really pulling for any of these people. They all seem kind of douchey to me. And then and then my third one is just James Cameron. Just what a prick. <laughs> I mean, just I don't even feel the need to justify that. If you just watch his Oscar speech from that yeah. year, I'm the king of the world. What's the king of the world? It just—it's like he just walked around. And I'm like, yeah, I made the greatest movie ever. And I'm like, no, you didn't. You didn't make. You don't deserve any of this. This movie was not that great. You—you you struck a chord with tons of 14-year-old girls. That doesn't make this the best movie ever made. For them, it does. Yeah, but I don't. But but here's the thing about this movie too. I don't think it's really stuck where it was in the film can. If you look at IMDb, no, it had a. I think it has a, a 7.2 rating now. It's in the top 250, but just barely. So, Lance, a big part of this for you is that you 
like if, if Titanic had come out and you know it made a hundred million dollars and kind of disappeared, you'd be like, oh, it's a good movie. Yeah. But you're pissed that it it found this groove and this audience that everybody loved it, and you just didn't. You felt like that was a imbalance. I in can't the world. deny there is an injustice here to me. Like yeah. it annoys me that James Cameron gets to go to bed at night with his Oscar and think he made one of the greatest movies ever. It is and, and has valid evidence to back up his claim. Hmm. That's what annoys me. And, and not people, just once. And the movie going yeah. audiences gave him that evidence. That's what annoys me. For a movie that now I don't think people hate, but I don't think is nearly as beloved as it was. Yeah, it's kind of like Avatar in that way. I remember this movie came out in December of uh, 96. 97. 97. I remember going to the theater the next April at noon, and every show that day was still sold out. Yeah. It <laughs> yeah was, I mean, it was crazy. crazy. Yeah. And <laughs> it was number one for like 14 but, weeks. But I mean, in a that's, row. you can't say that's inflation. I mean, like, that struck a chord with something. Oh, that's, not, like, that's, that's very that's not impressive. inflation. Like, he and, tapped into something. And what infuriates me more, and again, I don't hate James Cameron. Like, I, his, his early work, some, some of my favorite movies. Hmm? Then he does it again with Avatar, mm-hmm. makes a totally mediocre to below mediocre movie, and gets completely rewarded for it <laughs> it just it kills me he makes so much money on yeah, pretty he amazing. keeps being right even though he's wrong well that's what drives me crazy and you guys may not remember this because you didn't have the weekly subscription to entertainment weekly but before oh, does that come out weekly yeah it comes out weekly uh before titanic came out people thought it was going to be a huge bomb it was it was going to be like a cleopatra yeah because the i mean it had the highest budget of all time by the time it came out and it didn't even and it just kept huge, right? it just opening kept going yeah it opened huge. really kind of low and people were like oh it's going to be a bomb but then it just kept going and going and going and going and I don't the man is due for a huge fall <laughs> that's all I'll say and I'm gonna I'm sit not, back and knows? enjoy it. I'm not saying I want him to fall I'm just saying the man is due I think he can't he can't keep coming up aces with this over and over and over again and yet he seems to and I, I do feel like I mean, if I had to sit here and predict and we could listen to this years from now and I was totally wrong I do feel like Avatar will be his Waterloo like that will be the one where he finally collapses <laughs> considering that he's got four more in the works yeah. that's why yeah, I think it will fail I don't think people they take place underwater I don't think people want four more avatars (laughs) but we'll see (laughs) All right, uh, Jordan you're number three no you're number one you're number one number one Fight Club David Fincher 1999 it uh, based on the Chuck Palniuk is that how you say (laughs) it Palniuk Palniuk book of the same of the same name Chucky P this one actually is kind of low on Rotten Tomatoes at 79 that's surprising but the audience score is higher than Gladiator 96 Six. Hmm. And I think there are a lot of critics who had problems with this movie, but I guess it's like a mainstream cult movie. Yeah, I mean, yeah. this is the number 10 movie on IMDb's user poll of top movies yeah. of all time. It's, it like speaks for a generation that maybe well, I'm speaks, part of. It speaks for a generation uh, or a segment of a generation that always kind of annoyed me, like mm-hmm. Limp Biscuit fans. <laughs> like like that, bros. That, yeah, it seems, okay. it seems to attract that generation. You just offended 95% of the people who love Fight Club. I know. Right, but here's the thing is <laughs> I feel like those people <laughs> no, missed the point of Fight Club. I agree. Yeah. yeah, they do. They definitely missed the point of Fight Club. Yeah, the, and there's a an argument that I've seen a couple times about that. The reason for that great misunderstanding is that fascism looks so good on film that, <laughs> that people are attracted right. to that and there and then miss the point of the movie. But my problem with this movie is that I think that and this is going to drive you guys crazy. In the end, Fincher missed the point of the story. Explain how. Well. I, I could, but I'm going to say it in someone else's words okay. instead. Uh, Devin R. Ebert? 
No, this is Devin Farsi. He wrote this on a website he has called Birth Movies Death in 2015. And he says, the book ends with Tyler's biggest gesture being impotent, a telling finale to a book where the male characters are obsessed with masculinity and emasculation. The fact that the bomb fails to go off is the biggest refutation of Project Mayhem, which is what they're working on the whole time. But the book doesn't end there. It ends with the narrator waking up in the hospital thinking he is free of space monkeys, which are his like minions and Tyler Durden until one of the orderlies reveals himself to be a loyal space monkey and uh, the space monkey says everything's going according to plan we look forward to getting you back and instead Fincher decides to end on this happy note where everything works out fine so I, I'm, um, I'm still a little unclear the book ends with them failing the movie ends the with book, su- the succeeding bo- yes okay um, tell me this so when you left the movie theater were you like oh that ending sucks yes. I wish the bombs didn't go off or I did like you had to do some research no there wasn't something specifically I didn't I did, certainly didn't understand why it bothered me so much but I did understand that there was like a complete tonal shift in the last scene mm-hmm. where it felt different than the, the whole rest of the movie it felt like an alternate ending that they decided to use instead of using the original ending right. which I didn't know the original ending until earlier Man, this year that actually. movie is just so funny and Absolutely. so clever and amazingly shot Absolutely. Amazingly edited. Awesome score. I mean, I just, I could defend Fincher all day. I love Fincher. This is the only Fincher movie I don't like because I like Alien 3 a lot. (laughs) I think think that this movie is an even stronger example than No Country for Old Men of a movie that is so effective and so powerful and so awesome in every way until the end where it just craps itself. I thought this podcast was really good until the end. I'm with you on Fight Club. I I think it's overrated too. You guys are crazy. I mean, I, I would I would rewatch it because the 130 minutes are awesome. And then the last... <laughs> See, that, that, I think I, that's a good argument, though. I think you're making a good argument. Well, even that's nice of you to say. Well, I, I guess it, what's odd to me, and I think this is just where you and I see differently, but if I like 130 minutes of a movie, it's hard for me to like dismiss the whole thing. Which, yeah. which but, that's... But, but, but let me say this. I, but I get the counter side of that because an ending can ruin a movie. I do understand that. I don't, I don't hate or love this movie. I think it's okay. I would agree that it is a little bit overrated just in that the, the excessive love this film got uh, again, by, by really lame people. By Limp Biscuit fans. <laughs> I know um, a lot of people that are awesome that love this movie. Yeah, yeah. It, it seemed to just capture a certain mood with mm-hmm. people that 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 is a real thing and it, it exists and it, it needed to be spoken to. It just doesn't speak to me personally. That, I think that's my issue with it. It's more of a personal taste. Thing. Yeah, I, I don't really relate with it other than I relate with how awesome it is. Yeah, I, I don't have an anarchist bent. I don't think we need right. to bring society down. I think there are a lot of people who do feel that way. And for them, this was a this was a rallying point. I mean, I, I think Fincher's work is so incredibly effective. I think he takes every single opportunity to put something clever or smart or fun in it, and he jams. It, it's one of the most like jam-packed feeling movies I've ever seen. All right, Gibby, number one overrated. All right, my number one overrated film, David Lynch's 2001 drama, mystery, thriller, Mulholland Drive. I thought it was okay. Was it the number best film of the last 17 years by all these critics? I don't think so. I, I think it's up there. It, it's just, to me, it's like half of a pretty good movie, and then all of a sudden it's like he just goes completely off the rails. You feel like the first half is pretty good, and it's the second half that loses you. Yeah, I think when Naomi Watts switches, wow. that's when it loses me. Wow. Uh, I will say it has an awesome performance by Naomi Watts. I didn't know who she was when I saw this movie, and I watched it. Phenomenal. And I thought, this, this is great. I just looked up a man who has a way with words much better than I do. 
in, in the Rotten Tomatoes, James Berardelli. <laughs> Sorry, James Berardelli. Chocolate maker, Man James Berardelli. James Berardelli. <laughs> uh, I think now reviews things for Time Magazine, but here's his quote. Lynch is playing a big practical joke on us. He takes characters we have come to care about and obscures their fate in gibberish. Yeah, when he says that, that's kind of the way I thought about the movie. The second half is just a mess. Mm-mm. At least, you know, in my opinion. And, it, and again, I don't hate the movie, but I just don't get the love for it. Yeah. I actually didn't see it when it came out and I, I just watched it about a week ago. Oh, for the first time? For the first time. And I am completely in love with it. I think it's one of the best movies I've seen in the last 17 years. Wow. It is absolutely mesmerizing. It, it does this thing that, that I really appreciate in a movie and I risk sounding... Um, Pretentious? Yes. But I but I don't I don't mean it that way at all. It, it feels like you're watching it and it feels like there's some great revelation just out of grasp. Yeah, and you have no idea what it is and I, which doesn't work. Well, I feel like I've, I'm on to it. Like I'm on the edge of really understanding what's going on and I, I love that feeling. But that, that seems like your complaint about these other movies. No, I don't I don't watch No Country for Old Men and feel like, oh, I almost understand what this is about. Like I understand I under I get it. I mean No Country for Old Men, I find the end just totally unsatisfying. You this just movie want I to found almost get it. <laughs> That's a satisfying ending. I do. Well, I, I, no, I do. I do get Mulholland Drive. I, and I found it super satisfying in its delivery. It's a, it's, it's a super weird movie. I found the first hour really difficult. Mm-hmm. The second half pulled it all together. And it definitely took some thinking after it was over and a little research as to, yeah, to really, you? I kind of got it. And then I did a little research and it saw just how tight it actually all fits together. And I went back and watched some of it. I, I just think it's a masterpiece. I think it's I mean, so there, perfectly a, done. There's a lot of people I respect in, in reviews I read, and you, Jordan, I respect you. Oh, wow. Uh, that that love this movie, but it, I just Did didn't. this win awards and stuff? No, the only thing it was nominated for was David Lynch um, <laughs> for director. It was nominated for Best David Lynch. <laughs> it was the Best David nominated Lynch of 2001. Nominated by David Lynch for Best Picture. For Best David yeah. Lynch. Did you know that, uh, interesting tidbit, this was originally supposed to be a television series? I did not know that. Yeah, and he had filmed the first half for the television series. That's probably why it looks That's different. That's why it looks different. It feels like the movie that like you're supposed to say that you like, so you can get admitted yeah. to the like pretentious <laughs> right. douche nozzle club which was right. the risk i was taking but it's not actually at all i don't think I that's why you're saying it but i do think a lot of people who say they love this movie don't really know why they love it it's just a thing to say because it's cool to like david lynch right all right my number one most overrated film oh man i've got my knives out for this one star trek 27 deaths. episode five <laughs> empire strikes back star trek, star trek episode said. five <laughs> yep edit that out just offended all of us <laughs> you don't need to say Star Wars Episode 5 Star either. Wars yeah. Episode 5 <laughs> The Empire Strikes Back you, I don't think ha- it, you don't have to say Star Wars Episode 5 I think it's important in this case to say Star Wars Episode 5 and I think that's what we'll get to it than Star yeah. Trek Episode 5 <laughs> I think if people hear Empire Strikes Back they know and by the way I mean, you thought we were going to get hate mail for what was it Big Lebowski no you thought that All right, yeah I do think that let's, let's, let's clarify here Empire Strikes Back is not an awful movie oh thank you it is over <laughs> Overrated. People, they say it's the best of the Star Wars movies. <laughs> you can't even get it out. <laughs> yeah. 94% on Rotten Tomatoes. Um, 
sits at number six all-time domestic, adjusted for inflation, box office, widely considered to be the best of the Star Wars trilogy. Is that true? Am I speaking out of turn there? I think you're right. I think that's what most people say. So it was really difficult to find a bad review of this. Vincent Canby of the New York Times, which, by the way, his profile picture looks like a 90-year-old white guy. But he said... That's that's who's on your side. Listen, he said, The Empire Strikes Back isn't even a complete narrative as no beginning or end being simply another chapter in a serial that appears to be continuing not onward but upward but sideways why didn't he say episode episodic is the i feel like that's the the point is that it's it's, (laughs) he basically just described the point of what george lucas was trying to do yeah but that's not a movie if he wants to make a a a a serial like well for okay All right, I'm just going to revisit what happens in this movie because it's not a lot. There's not a lot that happens in this movie. And by the way, it's like 124 minute runtime. And it yeah. feels like you just watched a half hour episode of a cartoon on Saturday morning. I've never felt that way. Go for it. We're introduced to it with a scene basically to give Luke an excuse to have a scar because he was in a, a motorcycle accident before filming the movie. Uh, uh, an awesome scene to do that. there's a, uh, a battle in the snow. This is and, awesome. And by the way, what are what are the AT-ATs designed for? You've described two things so far that are awesome. <laughs> yeah, yep, totally awesome. Yeah, I mean, that's are, how you've started your that's criticism. Pretty much okay, no, I'm just, I'm, I'm covering, I'm not saying that these individual scenes may not be be cool in some way when you're like a little kid watching it or whatever. Oh, wow. <laughs> but what I am or saying is not all that happened. So I'm just covering what happened. Yeah, also not true. Keep going. Well, that's not exactly all that's happened. The rebels are hiding out on Hoth yeah. right. from the Empire so that they can bolster up their strength and yeah, and, they, and then they find him and they fight. That's no, there's, all that no, hang on. No, there's progression of Luke's story as he is captured by the monster. He, mm-hmm. he sees Obi-Wan's vision again. We learn more about his where he's at with the Force. Yep. Yeah, I'm already but falling asleep. Anyway, keep going. And and Leia, and we get to see a little bit of the progression of Leia and, and Han's relationship. And Han's relationship. Uh, next big important plot twist uh, Luke kisses his sister. He doesn't know it's his sister, yeah. All the important people. It wasn't people, like a kiss. It was like a, hey, you're my all sister. All the important people escape. Han and Leia chill out on a rock. Nothing happens. They just start to fall in love. That's Luke, all. Luke, and it's not a rock. Luke trains with Yoda, gets yeah. his montage the fantastic. on. You, the way the, I'm sorry, I have to stop you. The way you're glossing <laughs> over this is remarkable. Let me finish. They're, they're betrayed by a character who we've never met before, so it doesn't mean anything. You skipped a lot um, of stuff there. Luke uh, ends up going to save them, gets his hand chopped off. He learns that Vader's his <laughs> in, father. In by far the best fight and scene then, of the nine films. And then or seven uh, films. He, he escapes. Uh, he also finds right, out that Darth Vader I, is I, his let, father. Let me, let me do something here real quick. A shocking let, Let's take one of your favorite movies ever, Harry Potter. Let me do what you just did, Harry Potter. <laughs> uh, kid finds out he's magic, he's a magician, he goes to a school, he, he graduates. Big deal. That's what you <laughs> Just did with him. I mean, would that would, would that be an accurate synopsis of Harry Potter? No, it would not. Okay, so uh, Luke does have a minor arc in that he learns how to control the Force, uh, and he uh, finds out who his dad is. Which, by the way, in doing research uh, about this, Lucas wrote the final two drafts of the film in April of 1978, which is kind of cool because that's the month I was born, April of 1978. You think he'd write in a different month for someone who appreciates the film. (laughs) Um, It was during these rewrites that he added the fact that Vader was Luke's father, something missing from earlier drafts. Uh, and believed to be a plot twist that wasn't thought of until these uh, final drafts. And just an interesting tidbit, to keep the new twist a secret, the actor's scripts read, Obi-Wan killed your father instead of I am your father. Mm-hmm. And Mark Hamill didn't even know it until moments before filming the close-up. <laughs> Is that where he goes? No! Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> That's not true! No! That's impossible! <laughs> makes the cat face. 
<laughs> so but basically, I feel like it. I feel like there's not a lot of um, character arc here. There's not a real Luke kind is of, tempted by the by the dark side. There's, I mean, there's not a, a real through line goal. I will say the end. final act picks back up and, and it's kind of fun. And obviously there's the kind of banter that's fun. And again, I don't think this is a terrible movie. I just think it's it's greatly overrated uh, and absolutely not uh, one of our best films. I have two nephews. I have a, a two-year-old and a four-year-old nephew. And, and sometimes they say things that are like so insane that I can't even take them seriously. And as I'm hearing you talk about this, this is, this is how, (laughs) that's how I feel hearing you talk about this. It's like, I'm not even mad at you right now. And while I admit there's a subjectivity to film, like what you're saying is so off and incorrect. And I love you, Hudson, you know that. But I want to punch you in the face right now. (laughs) I'm I'm actually mad at you. I'm going to agree, kind of. I think that within Star Wars, Empire Strikes Back is overrated in saying that it's the best of the three. Because I don't think it is, especially not as a movie. I think the first one is the best, far and away, easily, forever. The second one does feel like an an episode of something, not like a whole movie. Like a fifth episode of something. But the second one we see. Second one. Uh, and, I, and I understand that that was Lucas's point and that making the second one, they knew they were going to make a third one. But within the world of film, I don't think it's in any way overrated. So have we convinced you? Or? So, yeah. It's funny. Yeah. Hmm. I'd watch it. <laughs> it I'd is. watch it again. I hope you have watched it. You just spent, you know, 10 minutes eviscerating it. felt like it. Oh, three I mean, no, hours. Let's consider this. If nothing happens in it, if you just skipped Empire and you went straight from A New Hope to Return of the Jedi, how would that work? Would you feel like you missed a lot? Um. So what, happen- what happens that <laughs> carries over? I mean, Luke is good at the Force now. Why is, why is well, Luke Han saying, Leo, why is Luke saying Darth is dead? Um, Han is not really around. Darth Vader. Yeah. yeah, but that's he, all he stuff is, that could fit well, in the, the 20 second, minutes. The second one also is where Luke really starts to struggle with potentially being seduced mm-hmm. by the dark yeah. side. That's mm-hmm. that's a pretty key I mean, he learns his powers. You know, I just, I never take that as a real threat, though. Like, you never believe, like, oh, Luke's going to turn bad. Like, that's never a thing that you actually think know. is going to happen. When Return of the Jedi starts and he's wearing all black, he's got that yeah. hood on. No, you just think he's a badass. <laughs> <laughs> but when you're five or six... Like, you don't understand structure of a movie and, like, that this character's going to... Any conversation about Star Wars is tainted by the fact that you have a large part of your perspective on it still grounded in you as a five-year-old. Sure, absolutely. That's always well, going to be the problem that's talking about Star Wars. that's what I'm missing on it is I didn't have that connection as a kid in the same way. I mean, like, I had some of the cool toys. So, like, aesthetically, there's things that I see that I love. So, like, Chewbacca with all the C-3PO parts on his back. Like, mm-hmm. for whatever reason, that's just super cool to see. Yeah. Boba Fett is super cool. The Adats, as ridiculous as they are, are super cool. Like, just aesthetically, it's a, it's a cool movie, and it does bring me back to being a kid playing with all the toys and stuff. But that's not a reason to like a movie. No, I agree. And that that alone would not carry it. I I think there are so many other things that do carry it. But agree to disagree. I I can't agree to that. The only negative thing I would have to say about Empire is that basically it set the precedent for all future trilogies where the middle one has to be a downer and end with a surprise. He agrees with me. Well, let's... Give me full support. Saying that's a good. No, thing. that's not a. That's a. That's just a storytelling arc yeah. reality that has nothing to do with something that Empire said. The, well, se- the, se- the second act is always your characters hitting a low point. That's just how. Yeah, in a movie, works. not in a trilogy. But it's right. just a Let really long you, movie. Should a 
sequel be able to be watched without having seen the first one? A sequel, yes. But part of a, a trilogy? Mm, I, I, that's a cheat, Debatable. Though. It's not a cheat because the way he set this up was in episodes. It's supposed to be episodic. It's supposed to all be watched. I see, I see your point. I see what you're saying. I don't think it applies here. It's not like Alien. Alien and then Aliens, they're supposed to be different. They're not episodic. This right. is episodic. It's different. Okay, let's and and say Lucas, Lucas was mimicking old serials. I mean, that's what he was trying to do. Sure. Those were not meant to be watched right. individually. I mean, Lord of the Rings is the same way. Let's say Empire, for whatever reason, failed miserably. He was never able to make Return of the Jedi. Would Star Wars be as beloved? Just no, those because two it would movies. have failed miserably. No. <laughs> <laughs> yes, for the very reasons you just pointed out, no. <laughs> just the story. Like, it's an incomplete story. Yeah. It doesn't stand on its own. It also doesn't complete the story. It's not supposed to complete the story, though. That's the point. This is supposed to be a cliffhanger. Serials had cliffhangers, so right. does this. That's what he was trying to do. Lucas if you don't like what he was trying serious. to do, that's fair. But you have to judge this against the subtext of what it was trying to accomplish. And I'm sorry that I said I was going to punch you in the face. I'm not. I don't believe that you're going to do that. If you're going to punch anybody, it's Gibby. He's closer to you. <laughs> you can reach me. You probably can't reach him. All right. What are you guys excited about this week? Lance, go. I'm excited about seeing the uh, continuing loving bond between Angelina Jolie and Brad Pitt continue to flourish. <laughs> he stole mine. Or, wait. <laughs> oh, hang on. I just Googled. Oh, oh no. Okay, never mind. <laughs> Did you think they got back together? Yeah, it could be. By the time this comes out, maybe they're back together. Uh, Gibby, what are you excited about? Uh, one of the things that I'm not so excited about, but just needs to be noted, is that a man who directed, in my opinion, one of the most perfect movies of all time uh, passed away. 27 Dresses director. <laughs> um, no, Curtis Hansen, director of L.A. Confidential, mm. uh, died this week. And it's just kind of sad, but man, L.A. Confidential is a great film. Great Should film. have won uh, Best Picture in 1997. Yeah, over it Titanic. lost to Titanic. Uh, Jordan, what are you excited about? Uh, I'm excited about this book that I'm reading. I read a lot of Stephen King, and so I'm reading his collaborative effort with Peter Straub called mm. The Talisman. Yeah. Lance started reading it a while back and gave up. Well, the funny thing is I gave up on page 85. He said it gets awesome on page 90. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it does. It, it's got a slow start, but I'm I'm really really enjoying it. I'm in I'm somewhere in the two hundreds right now, and I'm I get real excited about Stephen King. Great books, as you should. Yeah, good writer. Uh, I am excited about actually a combo of things, which uh, half of the combo is a book uh, called The Bone Clocks, which is by David Mitchell, who um, previously wrote Cloud Atlas, most famously. Uh, and I'm like almost done with it, and it's fantastic, and I really love it. It's, Hudson's going to finish a book. <laughs> Thanks, Gibby. You read the whole thing? Okay, but here's the s- second half of my thing I'm excited about is I got an Audible account. And so I've been, I own this book, and I listen to it on audiobook on the way to and from work and then I'll get home and I'll pick it up on the book and so I keep going back and forth and I kind of love it. Hmm. It's kind of a great way to like fly through a book. Uh Anyways, The Bone Clocks is a story that takes place over like six different decades, six six different main characters but they're all intertwined. A little bit of fantasy thrown in there. Quite good. Lots of good stuff to be excited about. Thanks for joining us everybody. We'll see you next week. Thanks everybody. Tweet us at Fight About Film with your own list of most overrated films. And if you enjoyed the show, please remember to subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes. Four Friends Fight About Film is produced by the Brothers Ray in Atlanta, Georgia. This episode was recorded and edited by me, Jordan Noel. Well, bye.